If you have a Bible, I uh, would invite you to turn to Psalm uh, 27. And if you are new with us, we, work our way, we tend to work our way through books of the Bible. We're taking a summer series in the book of Psalms. This is our fifth week of six, and we'll be looking at uh, Psalm 27 today. I don't know if you've been watching any of the Olympics. I do know that ratings are down quite a bit, and maybe for a variety of reasons. But uh, typically, Janine and I will try almost every night to catch a little bit, maybe an hour or so of some of the events. My favorite events are the, the sprints and the relays. Um, Janine's favorite event is a shot put. And so, uh, no, actually, that's the, one, that's the one time we were watching together. She said, is there anything else on TV uh, besides this? Uh, but we try to catch about an hour of it together at night. And one of the things that we've noticed is there is a trend in some of the discussions. What we've seen is we're actually hearing less about medal counts and more about some of the mental health uh, issues and concerns of some of the athletes. And I'm not criticizing. In fact, I, I, I respect and I appreciate the candor and the openness of, of the athletes. But I have been a little surprised at how widespread this is. I mean, from swimmers to weightlifters to gymnastics, uh, uh, gymnasts, we're hearing athletes who are struggling with depression, fear, and even at times crippling anxiety. I saw Michael, Michael Phelps had an interview, uh, I guess it was about a week ago, and he was sharing what he had said to Simone Biles, and he said, I told her that just about every week, every single week, there's at least one day when I can't even get out of bed because of the anxiety that I'm struggling with. Now, we know it's not just, of course, world-class athletes who struggle with anxiety. People of every age, race, ethnicity, uh, country, educational background, all places in the world are struggling, uh, struggle with fear and, and anxiety. And COVID-19, which hit us, you know, about a year and a half ago, has caused the, the number of folks suffering with anxiety to skyrocket astronomically, especially among those who are uh, between 8 and 18 years old. I mean, the adolescents are uh, reporting this again at, a, at an alarming pace. And right now, some of you may be wondering, what do we do about anxiety? What do I do about my anxiety? How, I, how do I learn to deal with this anxiety? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning from the text of Scripture. Uh, we're in Psalm 27 again, which is a song that actually deals very pointedly with the topic of anxiety from someone who himself suffered with it. How did he respond? How do we respond? Is there an answer for our anxiety? Psalm 27, let me begin, or let me just read the whole thing in its entirety because it, it flows uh, really as one unit. We read this, of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I'll be confident. One thing I have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For he will hide me in the shelter, in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. 
And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to, to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So in the Bible, there are 150 psalms. And these, by the way, these are not chapters. Sometimes people say, turn to Psalms, chapter, whatever. These are actually, it's a book of psalms in which we have 150. And 116 of those have what's known as superscripts or titles. These often appear in your Bible in in caps right above the chapter. You look and you see many of those. And, and, and what they sometimes do, the, the superscripts, is they tell us what was going on in the life of the psalmist when he wrote the psalm. So what was the historical background? We read, uh, for example, in Psalm 3 that it says of David when he was uh, running or he had fled from Absalom. Psalm 51, we have the superscript that tells us it's of David after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so it gives us that historical context. But Psalm 27 that I just read doesn't give us much. It does tell us that it is a, is a psalm of David. Um, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it also says in the superscript that it was a psalm of David before he was anointed. If you remember the story of David's life, you, you, you recall he was actually anointed three times. Um, the psalm begins with the superscript that it was before he was anointed, which probably is a reference to um, before he was anointed the second time, but after he was anointed uh, by Samuel in Bethlehem. You say, well, why does that matter? Why, why bring that up? Well, I bring it up because this psalm was probably written when David was pretty young, uh, very young perhaps in terms of age, but also in terms of his experience. And he's at this point as he writes, as he's beginning to feel the pressure He's beginning to make some enemies. You ever had any enemies? He's beginning to have people who are, who, are, who are plotting against him and scheming against him. He's feeling the pressure of leadership. He's feeling the pressure of not being liked by everyone. He's feeling the, the, the stress of what he anticipates may happen to him as he is becoming public enemy number one among some of the surrounding nations. And so what this psalm is about, it's a psalm about David going from fear to trust. David going from anxiety to calm. And so, of course, you say, well, how do you know that? Well, David was thinking about and envisioning all the bad things that could happen to him. And what happens when somebody does that? When you start to think about all the, possi- the worst possible scenarios, it, it triggers something emotionally in us. David says in verse 2, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. He's not saying that evildoers are presently assailing him. 
He fears that this is going to happen soon. In verse 3, he says, though an army encamp against me, though war rise against me. He's not saying that an army is encamped against him at that very moment or someone is waging war against him at that very moment, but he expects that this might very well happen soon. In verse 5, he anticipates the day of trouble when his enemies will surround him. In verse 10, David says, for my father and mother have forsaken me. But there's no indication in the rest of Scripture that this ever really happened to David. In fact, to the contrary, we know David's father, Jesse, and we know by all accounts he was a doting and protective father until he died. What is David doing? He is imagining the worst-case scenarios. And of course, that can bring with it a tremendous amount of anxiety. Do you ever do this? Do you ever rush to the worst possible conclusion when something happens uh, in your life. You feel a pain in some part of your body and you think, well, it's, it's official. I'm dying. <laughs> My sister, and she, she would absolutely kill me if she knew I was sharing this, but um, a couple of weeks ago, she started texting us with these frightening texts. She was in tremendous pain, just this incredible pain. And so she was rushed to the ER. And the, way to ma- the way that she made it sound by text is we really thought she was going to die. So we're, we're getting things ready. We're mentally, we're preparing to go see her in Middle Tennessee. And then she got to the hospital and she found out that she was just severely constipated. And I have to tell you, for a big brother, this is gold. I mean, this, I mean, this is absolute gold. I got so much mileage out of that. Um, but we really thought she was dying for a little bit. You know, this is how, we can do this. You can go down that road of thinking the, the absolute worst. You know, you're your daughter gets a 6 out of 10 on her third grade quiz, and you say, well, she's just not college material. I know this. You know, you, uh, your son acts out in his sixth grade class, and you say, I just know he's going to end up in jail one day. I just know it. Your boss looks at you funny on Monday morning. You think, well, today is the day I'm getting fired. And we go down that road. We, we have this natural tendency to imagine the worst. And, and this is what David is doing, frankly. One pastor and theologian writes, David is visualizing the worst things that can happen. Why? Because he wants to have a strategy of life, a strategy of dealing with fears and anxieties that can stand up to anything. But we have to ask the question, is this a good approach? This is not what I was taught in my freshman year in college in psychology, 101. This is not what I was taught was the way to do this. I was taught the opposite. I was taught this thing called guided imagery, where you think about the best case scenario. So is this a good thing to do? Well, there's actually some value in thinking briefly about the worst that can happen. People who go, go down this road mentally are typically better able to respond when something really tragic does happen, those who have at least gone down that road for a moment mentally. I have a friend and mentor who's when he was in his 40s, he would say to his kids, teenage kids on a regular basis, he would say, you know, dad's not going to be around forever. I'm going to die someday. And it could be very soon. And I want you to think about that. One time I heard him say this to his son, who was 16. And privately, I said to him, man, that seems kind of dark. I mean, to be constantly saying that to your kids, like, why do you say that all the time? He said, well, I want them to envision a future without me and think about how they will respond when that becomes a reality. So I do think there's some value, again, in in, in 
momentarily thinking about worst-case scenarios. In fact, according to, to research, the kind of people who engage in this mental exercise, again, typically respond more effectively and quickly when something bad does happen. But this is no place to dwell mentally. There's a better way to prepare ourselves for the possibility of trouble. Look at verse 1 again. David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So when David thinks about all the bad things that could potentially happen, and these are things that he's actually anticipating, he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? So at least for a moment, David says, I have no reason to be afraid. Light is a, is a frequent metaphor in the Bible, really for everything that's good, um, wisdom, joy, strength, vitality, truth. And the word salvation in verse 1 means deliverance from a dangerous situation. And so David saw God as his light, his salvation, the one in whose presence is everything good. And because of that, he didn't live in fear or anxiety. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to give you the theme of this psalm, and then I'm going to unpack it at what, I, what I'll call three affirmations or explanations. So in this, the theme of the psalm makes up the theme of this message, and here's what it is. The answer to anxiety is an ongoing and ever-deepening fellowship with God. Now, I understand when I say the answer um, I recognize, and I'm not minimizing or ignoring the reality of physiological, psychological contributors to anxiety. And I know that trauma often plays a huge part in this. But often, our anxiety can be addressed or remedied by an ongoing and ever-deepening relationship, fellowship with God. David says this is the one thing he wants in verse 4. If there's one thing that he desires above all else, he, that he may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, inquire in his temple. This is language of intimate fellowship. This is language of closeness. What David is saying is he has no, no interest in a superficial, surface-level surface relationship with God. He says, God, I don't want to know you from a distant distance. I don't want to know you sort of from the outside looking in. He knows that that sort of relationship won't allay his fears. That won't calm his pounding heart. What David says is, I don't want to have some sort of generic belief in you. I want to know you personally. I want to know you intimately. I want to see your beauty. I want to be near you. That's all I want. David knows that when we are in deep fellowship with God, when we are close to God, if I can say it that way, communing with God, anxiety can't live there. Now, it may flare up in us, and we're going to see in just a moment it does with David himself, but it's short-lived when it does. It doesn't haunt us long-term. It is replaced by actually confidence and expectation. But how do we enjoy that sort of fellowship with God? How do we enjoy that sort of closeness? Fortunately for, for us, David will actually show us, he models for us in this passage three disciplines that lead to a deepening fellowship with God. So we see the first one in verse 6. Look at verse 6 again. Uh, David, David says, 
And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Now this may sound like, because the first person pronoun here, that this is an individual exercise, but that's not true. Sacrifices in the tents made with shouts of joy and melodies made to the Lord. These are things that were accomplished by the sound of trumpets, by, the, by a multitude of voices. As far as I know, one person can't sing harmony and melody. This is a reference to the gathering of God's people in the tent for worship. So here's the first way we experience that deepening fellowship with God. By gathering with God's people for worship, we experience the nearness of God. Have you ever noticed this in your own life? You know, when you, when you maybe this morning, certainly was for me, you, you gather together with God's people and God ministers to you in a profound way. There's something unique that happens, that's something that cannot be replicated by any other uh, uh, means. Something happens when God's people gather in worship. He actually draws near to them in a special way. He draws closer to His people in a unique way. Now, the nearness of God, the nearness of God is a fascinating concept. Sometimes God comes near to His people. You say, well, how can that be true? I thought God was omnipresent. I thought God was always everywhere at once. And you're right, He is. Theologians talk about God's spatial and spiritual presence. God's spatial presence... Of course, every time I say that, I have to clarify, this is not me saying special with a southern accent. God's spatial presence refers to the fact that He is always fully everywhere at every moment. So God is here with us right now. You realize that? God is with us right now. A little girl said one time to me, she said, I know that God lives inside me. Whenever I put my hand over my heart, I can feel Him moving around in there. Well, she didn't have it exactly right. But she did recognize something. God is closer than we think. What difference would it make in your life if you knew something of the nearness of God? You know that the single most oft-repeated promise in the Bible? I will be with you, God says. There's no place that we can go where we are not, where we are without God's full presence. God is present in the totality of His being at each point in space. He is spatially present everywhere. But the, but the Bible also talks about God's spiritual presence. We see this a lot, maybe more in the Psalms than anywhere else. Theologian and professor John Feinberg, who actually was my academic advisor at seminary, writes this, the Psalms repeatedly refer to blessings coming to those who are in God's presence. Since everyone is ontologically, that is at the, at the level of being, in God's presence, these passages must speak about the spiritual presence of God in individual lives. Well, what, what happens when God comes near someone in, in that way, when God attends to someone with His spiritual presence? Well, He grants to them power for a particular task. We see this throughout the Old Testament. He grants protection against evil, comfort in times of duress, and a supernatural calm in the middle of crisis. We might say it this way, the freedom from anxiety. It was God's spiritual presence 
That was David's comfort when he thought about the armies that may soon attack him, the enemies that may soon uh, betray him, uh, the friends that may betray him, the parents that may abandon him, the false witnesses who may spread lies against him. These are all things that he expressed fears about in this psalm, but found comfort in God's spiritual presence. Those fears were relieved when he gathered with God's people in worship. Here's another way to say it. Rejoicing casts out fear. It's nearly impossible to overstate the importance of gathering regularly with God's people for worship. Do you want to grow in your closeness to God? Corporate worship is both a consequence and a conduit of God's nearness. It is both a consequence and a conduit of God's nearness. And yet, so many people neglect this privilege. I was talking to a guy just two weeks ago who's a pastor of a huge church in Nashville, and he was saying, you know, we were really kind of burdened by what we perceived to be just very erratic attendance at, at worship. And so we launched into this year-long study to see how many weeks per month people in our church gathered for worship. He said, how many weeks a month do you think it is? I said, I have no idea. Three out of four? He said, no, at the end of this long study, what we concluded that our people were gathering for worship 1.7 times per month. That's less than half the time. That's two other weeks per month not gathering together with God's people in worship. And of course, the elders of this church in Nashville were grieved by this. Not because they want some sort of legalistic requirement, but because it's by gathering in worship that we grow in fellowship with God and stave off anxiety. Now, there's another way we grow in fellowship. Look at verses 7 and 9 again. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, David says. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Now, commentators... Uh, make the point here that there's a drastic mood change in this psalm with this point, and it's very true. There's a, a very different feel in verses 1 through 6 than verses 7 through 14. David's confidence is waning in the latter part. It seems to be touch and go. Just moments ago, he's saying, look, I'm not afraid of anybody. Why should I be afraid of anybody? And now he says, God, where are you? Don't leave me. Don't cast me away. Old Testament scholar Trimper Longman says the depth of David's anxiety is expressed here. There's such a stark change between the first and second half of the psalm that some scholars actually have concluded or argued that these are two different psalms pieced together. But I think that interpretation fails to consider the mood changes that we can easily go through in one day. Right? Um, the great artist Sting uh, had a song uh, when he branched off into his solo career called All Four Seasons. And the song was about his, his bride who said he go, all, all, she goes through all four seasons in one day. Sunny and then cloudy and rainy and springtime. And it's not, just, it's not just wives or women. It's all of us. We all have days when we, we start out and we're on our way to, to the office and we're belting out a song in the car. And then by lunchtime, we're just mad at everybody. This happens. And so I think, I think the, the, those who argue that this is actually two psalms stitched together are really missing it. 
Just like all of us, I mean, we have highs and lows, we have ups and downs, and even the highs of, co- of corporate worship can be short-lived. As essential and life-giving as this is, there's more to the Christian life than just gathering together. And David knows this. David longs to enjoy the sweet and uninterrupted fellowship with God. So what does he do? He seeks God's face. He said, God, you, you said to me, seek my face, and now with all my heart, I'm seeking you. He wants to know God at the heart level, so he cries out to God in prayer. So here's that second discipline that, that leads to an ever-deepening fellowship with God. Through desperate prayer, we experience the spiritual presence of God. Just like in corporate worship, in a way that's different, but God attends to His people in a unique way when we cry out to Him in prayer. So not only is prayer the vehicle through which God pours out His grace and His power in our situation, so that without prayer, nothing of any value can be accomplished, but prayer is also the means by which God gives us Himself. And I know this to be true biblically, through studying the Scriptures, I know it to be true experientially. When I find myself unusually irritable, when I find myself worrying about something, which by God's grace, I don't do a ton of worrying, but when I do worry, when I do become just single-minded, I can't get anything, I can't get something off my mind, or I have this feeling that God is distant and unconcerned about what I'm going through, the first question I always ask myself is, okay, how am I doing in my devotional life? And I can tell you that when my prayer life is off, when I'm neglecting to spend quality time with the Lord in prayer, when I'm, when I'm too distracted or too busy or whatever I think I am, I'm not experiencing the spiritual presence of God the way that I do when I spend time in prayer. And there are times, being very candid with you, when, when I'm just not feeling it, you know, and I'm... And I'm frustrated or I'm preoccupied or whatever, or I'm feeling down or that God is distant and I will go to the Lord in prayer, go to my knees literally. And after spending time with the Lord, when I get back up on my feet, I feel, I recognize that God has ministered to me by his spirit. This is one of the ways that we, we enjoy this deepening and ongoing fellowship with God is through prayer. Now it must be said, we can't harness God's power. We can't manipulate God by our posture or force Him to come close to us. But corporate worship and prayer are the means by which He comes especially close to His people. As the psalmist says in another psalm, the nearness of God is my good. I love that. It's so good. Now there's one more way, one more discipline we see in this passage. Look at verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. And lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Teach me your way, David says. He's asking God to reveal to him God's very will. But here we are on the other side of the cross with the completion of the Holy Scriptures. And we actually have God's will in the Bible. So it's not some mysterious thing we have to seek after or turn over every rock to find. We have God's will in the Scriptures as we read about God's revelation, His will, it deepens our faith and our fellowship with God. So here's that third discipline. We want to enjoy that deeper fellowship with God. As we seek God in His Word, God reveals His gracious intentions for us. 
So we read this great drama of redemption, and we read the story of how God has always been at work for his people, and we read that, and our faith is strengthened, and our discouraged hearts are enlivened by this wonderful, sovereign, glorious God who is working for our good. Because in the Bible, we find a God who delights in knowing his creatures. The story of the Bible is not man searching for God but of a God who goes after the ones He created, the ones who have rebelled against Him, the ones who have turned against Him. And God goes after them so that He can know them personally, so that He can satisfy their souls with Himself, so that He can be to them everything they need. This is what happens to David. He goes from anxiety to confidence as he gazes upon the beauty of God, as he pleads with God. He goes face to face, as it were, with God. Look at what happens, verses 13 and 14. David says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So David, and one of the things I love about the Scriptures is we see the, the internal journeys, the angst of the people of God. They're not perfect people. You know, some, some churches have sermon series on the heroes of the faith, but the people in the Bible, they're not heroes. You know, they, 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 some serve God with great courage at times, but they all faltered and they all failed God. But here David has moved from anxiety to confidence, from fear to hope. And even though our challenges are certainly different than his, um, sometimes we may have challenges that David never faced. And sometimes David, you know, we look at the challenges of David and we say, well, we're never going to go through that. Even though our struggles are different, the opportunity is likewise there for us to experience the spiritual presence of God, the nearness of God through gathered worship, through desperate prayer, and by taking in His Word. Now, lest you think that this is just another message telling you to go to church more, and to read your Bible more, and to pray more. There's something else going on here, and I don't want you to miss it. We see it in the very first verse of this psalm. David calls God his light and his salvation. Now, if you survey the, the Hebrew Scriptures, what we know is the Old Testament, you'll find that God is almost never called light. It's just not a metaphor that's used for God. Now, God creates light. God provides light. We know that in God there is no darkness, only light. We know that the Word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. But that metaphor, God is not typically called light. However, in the New Testament, John the Baptist introduces Jesus as the light of the world. In Him, the Word, the Lord Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John came to bear witness of the light. He says that through him, through the light, all might believe. This was the true light, he says, which gives light to every man coming into the world. The evangelist goes on to say that Jesus came into the world, but his own did not receive him. But John holds out this promise regarding the light. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. And Jesus himself, doesn't Jesus himself, as he's in the temple at the feast of Succoth, he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. 
The New Testament repeatedly refers to Jesus as the light. The second way that David uh, describes the Lord in Psalm 27 is that He is God, my salvation. The word salvation is the Hebrew word Yeshua, which is the Hebrew name for Jesus. Remember what the angel of the Lord said to Joseph when he appeared to Joseph in a dream. And she, that is Mary, will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So what does all this mean? Well, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Psalm 27, David was pointing us to Jesus as the beginning, as the starting point for any true fellowship with God. In fact, we cannot enjoy fellowship with God of any sort unless we first trust in Jesus, the one God sent. But when we trust in, in God, we trust in Christ alone, the one God sent as our sacrifice, who lived for us, who died for us. We are reconciled to God. We are united with God. That's the starting point and the only starting point for fellowship with God. So you must know that none of these disciplines that I talked about, gathering with God's people in worship, going to God in desperate prayer, reading the Word, none of those things will deepen, deepen your fellowship with God, not even one inch, unless first you've been made right with God through faith in His Son. You can attend worship every week. You, you can have a perfect attendance record at corporate worship. And you can pray every day. And you can read the Bible through five times a year. But unless you have turned from your sin and trusted in the cross work of Jesus Christ as your only hope for salvation, you will never experience fellowship with God. In fact, you will remain God's enemy. There is no fellowship with God apart from Christ. But when we turn from our sin and we place our faith in Jesus, believing that He died, He lived in my place, He died for my sins, He rose again from the dead, then we are brought into the family of God. We're no longer dead in sin, no longer separated from God, no longer aliens and strangers, but brought into the household of God as His beloved children. Now, just as encouraging for us, those who have believed, those three disciplines that we employ in order to enjoy God's fellowship... Jesus actually practiced those disciplines perfectly in our place. Jesus worshiped God perfectly. So that when we fail to worship Him, when we fail to gather with His people, when we get into a bad rhythm, a bad rut of not gathering with God's people, even when we do gather but our mind's on something else, we can know that God sees Jesus' perfect worship and then looks at us as though we are perfect worshipers of the true God. Jesus had the perfect prayer life so that when we fail to pray or pray mindless prayers that we don't even think about what we're saying, God sees us as those who are perfect in their prayer lives because of Christ. Jesus sought God perfectly so that when we fail to seek God, fail to spend time in, our, in, in His Word, when our Bibles languish on a shelf gathering dust because we never pick them up to read them, God sees us as perfect in our pursuit of Him because of Christ. Now, this is not to say we neglect those disciplines, but just an understanding of how God sees those who are in Christ. And you see how all this ties together. What are the greatest causes of anxiety? conflict in our relationships, the feeling that we've 
We're disappointing the people we love. The feeling that we don't measure up. The fear of failure. This is what plagues Simone Biles. The fear of failure. But for those who are in Christ, we never have to fear failure. We never have to fear being rejected by God. We never have to worry that conflict in our relationship will separate us from God. We will never again be at odds with God. He delights in us and loves us even when we fail. Even when we fail to worship Him in spirit and truth. And even when we fail to pray desperately. Even when we fail to seek Him in His Word. Because of Jesus' work on the cross for us. Because of Jesus' perfect obedience in our place. We can have complete peace with God. Which brings with it a supernatural calmness. There's an inexplicable joy even when life deals us a terrible blow. doesn't mean we won't experience pain. Of course we will. doesn't mean we won't even have anxious thoughts or rhythms or times. But we will experience the nearness of God which brings us peace. This is what prompted David to say to himself, in the midst of this up and down, in the midst of his struggle, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, will you help us to do what you've called us to do? Will you give us the grace to pursue you in your word, to seek your face through desperate prayer, and to continue to gather with your people in worship? And yet, Father, when we fail to do those things perfectly, when we fail to do those things with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, will you also remind us this morning that you still love us, You still delight in us. You are seeing us as children who have been robed with the righteousness of Christ. And will the reality of our status before you, will it cause us, will it free us from anxiety, cause us to take great confidence in you and renew our hope even still in the future you have in store for us. We confess It's all because of Christ alone. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.